The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look to God's Word now. We have been going through the Gospel of John, and we are now coming to the great conclusion and climax of that book, Gospel of John, written by one of the apostles, the Apostle John, and who was an eyewitness of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year public ministry, probably the closest friend that Jesus had while he was on earth during the time of ministry. And this is John's first-hand account. And as I said, we are now coming to the climax. And the climax was the reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to live the perfect life and then to die or to be crucified on the cross willingly as a substitute for sinners. And as he hung on the cross, he was actually punished by God the Father, where God the Father poured out his infinite wrath on Jesus as the substitute for sinners so that anybody that would believe in Jesus Christ as their personal substitute, they could have forgiveness of sin in Him. That is why Jesus came. That is the good news, the gospel, that Jesus came to die for sinners to save them and set them free and adopt them and transfer them from the kingdom of Satan into the family of God. And the way Jesus did that was through the gospel. And the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel means good news. This is what Christianity has to offer that's distinct from every other religion and worldview that exists. The good news is that God has provided a way of salvation for sinners. And he rescued them through Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his willing death, his powerful resurrection. Then he ascended into heaven and he reigns on high. He literally lives today in heaven as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so that's where we are in the Gospel of John. We just saw last week the resurrection, Sunday morning, when he rose early Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene and some of the women came to anoint his body, and they found that he was not in the tomb, and angels communicated to Mary, he is not here, he is risen. And then Mary went and told the apostles, and John and Peter ran as fast as they could to the tomb, and they looked in the tomb, and Jesus' body was gone. Yet Peter and John didn't see Jesus himself yet like Mary Magdalene did. And then Peter and John went back to the other apostles there, the other nine or so apostles. And also there were other disciples probably hanging out with the apostles at that time. And we're going to meet two of them today. And they gave the testimony that Jesus' body was gone. And uh, John, John the apostle believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. So we're talking about the resurrection of Christ. And we will be as we finish the Gospel of John. Because that's what chapter 20 and 21 are about in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is now risen from the dead. He spends 40 days with his disciples to prepare them one last time and commissioning them for their work of the building of the church that would endure through the ages, that endures even today. Founded on the resurrected Christ. And so that's what I'm calling the sermon today is the resurrected Christ. And I want you to look at John 20. We went 1 through 18 last week, concluding with verse 18 where it said, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she did. She even grabbed Jesus to worship Him. And Jesus said, let go of me, Mary. Go tell my brothers that I am alive. And in obedience, Mary runs back and she tells the apostles uh, and the other disciples what to do. That She had seen the Lord. That's verse 18. I have seen the Lord and that He had said these things to her. Verse 19, John 20 says, When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. So you've got a gap of time here. It is Easter Sunday, the last time we saw. It was early Sunday morning. And now we skip 
to the evening on Easter Sunday, verse 19. And there were some events that transpired between verses 18 and 19 that are recorded in the other Gospels. And actually, that's why now I want to fill in the gaps there because this is so important and so significant. Before we go on to verse 19 of John next week, I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 24, which answers the question, well, what happened between John 18 and John 19? Between the morning of Easter Sunday and the evening of Easter Sunday, when Jesus appeared to the apostles in a resurrected body. Well, here's one thing we know that happened. Luke 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35. This interesting yet exciting incident of the resurrected Christ making an appearance to some of his disciples. And I just wanted, I broke it down into three points that I wanted to make regarding Jesus Christ interacting with a couple of believers that we don't know anything about and we, ne- we never will know anything about them in the Scripture or in this lifetime. Meet them in heaven, find out who they are, but uh, two believers that Jesus met on Resurrection Sunday. Let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, the first section there I want to look at is verses 13 through 25 and then we'll look at 26 to 27 and then we'll conclude the passage about the resurrected Christ. Uh, Jesus is going to meet two disciples, two believers, but this section really isn't supposed to be about them. One of them is, his name was Cleopas. That's all we know about him. Cleopas, some guy, some associate of the apostles, had heard Jesus preach and teach. He would go to Jerusalem, probably there he taught in the synagogue, rubbed shoulders with the inner circle of the apostles. His name was Cleopas, some man, but we don't know anything beyond that. And he's with somebody who else is walking by his side. So it's Cleopas and one of his friends, um, And they are not named because that is not important because the focus in this passage is on Jesus, the risen Christ. And to help us not lose focus, that this is about Christ risen from the dead all throughout. I've got three main points, but I've got a bunch of little subpoints underneath as we go through the narrative highlighting the character of Jesus, what Jesus is like. Because to become a Christian, you've got to know Jesus for who He truly is. Because the whole world believes in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Every religion believes in Jesus. But only Christianity teaches the right thing about Jesus. For example, we are talking about the resurrection of Christ. More than half the world of religious people don't believe that Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead. And I mentioned an example last week that Islam, the largest religion in the world, rejects the notion that Jesus was crucified. They don't believe He died on the cross. And they don't believe He rose bodily from the dead. So Islam rejects the resurrection of Christ. Of Christ, which is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, another religion, Mormonism, teaches they believe in Jesus. They say that Jesus was crucified, that he died on a cross, but they don't believe that he rose physically in a body from the grave. They believe he rose in like a spirit, some kind of phantom, but it wasn't a physical body. But we're going to see from this text, no, it was a physical body. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as well reject the biblical view of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection because they believe when Jesus was hanging on the cross at some point while he was on the cross the spirit of Christ that was in the man Jesus left his body so they don't believe the same Jesus that was buried was the same Jesus that was doing ministry for three years so we have to have a correct view view of who Jesus is and what he did and so we need to have a biblical understanding of the resurrection so let's go ahead and look at it And we'll be talking about Jesus and who He really is throughout the passage. The first section there, or point number one, is Christ's resurrection is appropriated by faith. 
appropriated. Big word. Christ's resurrection is appropriated by faith. To appropriate something is to take hold of that which is available. It is accessible. I just need to take it and apply it and assimilate it, assimilate it and embrace it in my life. To own it. To make it your own. So the resurrection of Christ, which is at the heart of the Gospel, needs to be appropriated. It needs to be owned. It needs to be personally assimilated into your life and your mind and your thought life and your heart. And you do that by faith. And the illustration here is here are two guys who are lacking faith. They are deficient in faith. They don't quite understand everything yet about Jesus and why He came and what went on and what was up with the crucifixion and where is He now and He's missing from the tomb. So they don't have sufficient faith. Their faith is weak. It is deficient. It's missing information. Could very well be that they are not transformed and born again in believers at this point because they don't have the fullness of the Gospel. And so what these two disciples need to be transformed is they need more faith. And that's exactly what Jesus provides for them. So let's go ahead and look at this. How Jesus encourages faith. Verse 13, And behold, and behold, this is kind of a startling statement. Pay attention to this. This is amazing, Luke is saying. And behold, on Resurrection Sunday, after appearing to Mary and the women, two of them, two of who? Two of the disciples or followers of Jesus at large. Two of the disciples uh, disciples or followers of Jesus were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. They were probably leaving Jerusalem where they had just finished hanging out with the apostles, probably, over the feast day week and weekend. They probably lived in the city of or town of Emmaus, which was seven miles north of Jerusalem. So they're leaving Jerusalem. Could be Sunday afternoon, definitely probably after lunch, and they're walking home and they live about seven miles away. So this is a lengthy walk. And that's what they're doing. So behold, two of them were going that very day on Easter Sunday to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were conversing with with each other. So they were in intense conversation with one another. Whether it was Cleopas and his son or his wife or a fellow disciple, we don't know, but they were in intense conversation. They were conversing with each other, ongoing continual conversation about what? about all these things which had taken place over the weekend, from the betrayal and arrest of Jesus basically at midnight, who was arrested without any legitimate reason whatsoever, underwent six many trials, a trial that was rigged from the get-go, condemned by Pilate, crucified by the Jewish leadership, hanging on the cross for six hours on Friday night, And now it's been three days later. And these two men, or these two disciples walking, they are Jews. And this is what they were talking about and conversing about. Man, wow. And they're just reflecting over the last three or four days. It was was the feast week at Jerusalem with maybe more than a million pilgrims who have converged on the city. The town was abuzz. It became a public spectacle of what happened to Jesus. Everybody who was there knew what was going on. Kind of like when you're, if you're in Vancouver right now, you know the Olympics are going on, even if you're not watching it. Everybody knows. So that's what's going on. So they're conversing, talking about everything that has taken place regarding Jesus and the injustice of the trial. And verse 15 says, And it came about that while they were conversing, they're just in, in 
engaged in their conversation, walking along, not paying attention other than just to themselves. And it says, while they're conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached these two and began traveling with them, which wasn't too uncommon because there weren't very many roads that went long distances as you travel. And many times it was safer to travel with a stranger who was going the same direction so that you wouldn't get robbed along the highway or attacked by animals. And so this wasn't out of the ordinary. And Jesus comes along and he just kind of starts falling along behind, or at least close enough in earshot so he could hear what they're talking about. So that's what he's doing. Verse 15. came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. He just joined the party. Hey, I'll help myself. And he did. Verse 16. Oh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 16. So Jesus approaches them. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Uh, The verb is in a passive form. That means that somebody else did this to them. The implication is God did this to them. God forbade them from recognizing Jesus when he approached them because they knew what Jesus looked like. So this was a divine, sovereign act of God. It's a mystery. I don't know why he did this, but he chose to. So Jesus decides, I'm going to have a conversation with these guys. And you know what? Up front, I'm not going to let them recognize me. And that's what he did. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, So what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? What what are you guys talking about? Jesus had been there long enough to listen. The intense conversation about Jesus and the trial and the crucifixion and that his body was missing, that's what they were talking about. And the Greek text literally literally says they were asking each other questions. Questions. So Jesus is eavesdropping. Then he joins their party. Now he just starts butting in and asking questions. He said to them, what are you guys talking about while you're walking? And they stopped in their tracks. That's what it says at the end of verse 17. They're walking along, heavy conversation. Some stranger joins them. They're walking along and then he butts into their conversation and they stop in their tracks. So it had an impact on them, his question. It says they stood still. Literally, they stopped walking or they were standing upright. And they were looking sad, literally looking darkened, sullen, depressed, lacking in faith, without hope. That's the point. Looking sad, verse 18, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have Uh, happened here in these last days? He's in shock. What do you mean, what's going on? What are we talking about? We're talking about, you you heard us talking. You were overhearing our conversation. We were talking about Jesus. Don't you know who that is? Don't you realize what just happened? Are you so isolated from Jerusalem you don't even know the events that have transpired that everybody knows? What's going on? That was his response to Jesus. What are you talking about? Cleopas was the spokesperson. Are you the only one visiting, not aware? Verse 19. So Jesus responds and says to them, What things? Get specific. Does Jesus know what they're talking about? Yes. And he heard what they were talking about. Crucifixion, all that stuff. Um, So what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is the master teacher. He's the master discipler. Uh, This is the very same thing that God did with Adam and Eve. He began to ask them questions, leading questions, probing questions, important questions, getting to the point, getting them to be focused and talk about the issue at hand and not be derailed on tangents. And he's giving them an opportunity to speak. And he's also forcing the issue so that it can issue the correct response from Jesus because he knows what they're talking about and he knows he has the answer. And his answer is going to provide them the faith they lack to have the hope they need. So he's driving, he's, he's taking over 
the conversation. And he says to them, what things are you guys talking about? And they said to Jesus, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene. So he gets specific. Jesus, the Nazarene. The reason he said the Nazarene is because Jesus was a common name in that day among Jews. There are many Jesuses. There's one Greek text that says Barabbas was Jesus Barabbas. Isn't that ironic? That was his name. Which Jesus? Jesus, the Nazarene. He was a rare one from up north. So that's what we're talking about. The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed. That's not a denigration of Jesus' character, just calling him a prophet, instead of saying he was the Son of God and God in a body and the eternal deity. No, a prophet, that was a legitimate title, because Deuteronomy 18 predicted that the Messiah was coming. A prophet greater than Moses. And that's what the Jews look for. They look for the prophet. And unbelieving Jews are still looking today for the prophet, the saving prophet, the redeeming, the Messiah, the King of Kings. So this was an appropriate designation. Jesus was a prophet. And by the way, it's legitimate because what does a prophet do? A prophet brings God's words to the people. That's what Jesus did. He was a spokesperson for the Father. He was a prophet. He wasn't just any prophet. He was a mighty prophet. A prophet mighty indeed. That's referring to his miracles. John delineated seven of those miracles for us. But Jesus did so many miracles, we can't even know. It can't even be written down in a book how many miracles He did in His ministry. Too many to count. So, so His miracles validated who He was, that He was distinct, that He was the Messiah. A prophet mighty indeed and in word. Because when Jesus taught, when He preached, people were stunned when they listened to Him. Many times speechless because of how and with what great authority Jesus taught with. He wasn't like any other teacher. He was God in a body and He spoke with authority like no other. And He also spoke with piercing conviction at times where people would become very uncomfortable with his, the way He taught or the content of what He said. Or they would get offended or angry and scream out in public calling Him a Samaritan or demon-possessed as we saw in John. So a preacher and teacher like no other, mighty in deed and in word, in the sight of God, and notice, in front of all the people, the entire city of Jerusalem knows about Jesus. Why is it that you don't know what we're talking about? Asked Cleopas and his friend. As I read this account, one of the first things I was thinking is going through it, I'm thinking, well, wow, of all the people Jesus could have appeared to on Easter Sunday, He appears to these two out of the blue. We don't even know who they are. Why did Jesus do that? Well, this just attests to Jesus' character as God. One of the attributes of God or characteristics of God is that God is sovereign. He does what He pleases. Sometimes as humans, we don't like that, do we? But everything He does is right. Everything He does is perfect. He does what He pleases. And also, this is the truth about God. God is selective. He is selective. Sovereignly selective. He chooses we see that in the doctrine of election. And of all the people in the world he could hone in on and have a conversation with that lasted quite a while, he chooses these two unknown disciples because it is his sovereign prerogative as God and as Savior to do so. So that's from God's perspective of why he chose to uh, pick these two. I think there's a practical reason of why Jesus zeroed in on these two is because he knew what they were talking about. They were interested in Jesus and his ministry, his death, his resurrection. They were ripe for the harvest. So Jesus being the evangelist. Jesus going to be the evangelist and tell people about Jesus. 
And that's what he's doing. He's going to bring them up to speed. Well, they go on. We're talking about Jesus the Nazarene, the great prophet, known by all the people, verse 20, and how the chief priests... Remember, these two men, disciples, were Jews. They went to the synagogue. The chief priests were their leaders. They were their leaders. Our chief priests. Did you not hear how the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews, and our, our rulers delivered Jesus up to the sentence of death, and they crucified Him of all things? Because the death penalty in the Old Testament most commonly was stoning to death or burning. Rarely was anybody to be crucified or hung on a tree from a Jewish point of view. That was reserved for the most vilest offenders. The only people according to uh, the Old Testament that would be hung on a tree were the worst, most despicable, conceivable sinners imaginable. And that's what they did with Jesus. This great prophet crucified Him. Our leaders So that's why they're saddened. The potential saving Messiah has been executed. Verse 21. But, so there's this, uh, this is a a sign of the despair they had, the lack of hope. They killed him. But we were hoping. See, they've lost hope. They need hope. They lack faith. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, save Israel. We thought he was going to be the prophet and the redeemer, but he's not. And we know he's not because he's dead. So they lack faith. They lack hope. Besides all this, it's the third day now. It's, th- it's hopeless. If, he's not, if he hasn't appeared by now, he's not going to appear at all. It's the third day since he was executed. Verse 22, but also some women among us, they amazed us. They got our hopes up. This is Mary Magdalene and her associates. Because when they were at the tomb early Easter in the morning, They didn't find Jesus' body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who had said that He was alive. But Cleopas and his friend, they didn't believe the women. They did not believe the testimony of the women. That says it later explicitly in Scripture. The women said, we've seen Him. He's alive. He is not here. He's risen from the dead. And some of the disciples refused to believe it. said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of, heart, of, uh, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And here Jesus, after listening in, he makes a correct diagnosis and he realizes these, these legitimate, sincere disciples of Christ lack faith, lack belief. They're thinking wrong. That's what needs to be corrected. Their thinking needs to be corrected. And their thinking needs to be corrected with truth. That's how you transform a mind. You address the mind and the thought life. Scripture is clear on that. And that's what Jesus means when He says in verse 25, And He said to them, Oh, foolish men! Well, sometimes we might be embarrassed by that kind of a statement. Wow, Jesus, you're coming on strong, man. You're going to offend people. That's not nice. That's not loving. Why did you do that? You're going to hurt their feelings. You don't even know these people. That's very much of an American mindset and mentality many times, isn't it? We don't want to tell people the truth. We don't want them to be transformed. We don't want to give them the greatest thing they need. Rather, we are often driven by the fear of man. I'm afraid of what they will think. Therefore, I'm not going to say the truth. Because it could be potentially divisive. So I'm going to veer away from it. I'm going to compromise. I'm going to lack courage. Jesus didn't lack courage. He was incarnate courage. And He's not saying this because He doesn't care for these disciples. He absolutely loves these disciples. He wants to save them. 
That's why in John earlier he said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know the truth and the truth will save you. That's what he's doing here. And the particular word that he uses, oh foolish men, oh with those who have wrong thinking. That's literally what he's talking about. He's addressing their mind. Your, your thinking is wrong. It is worldly. It is deficient. Therefore, you've come to a wrong conclusion about the most important issue in the world, Jesus the Savior. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all... They, well, they're not believing all of what? Well, they have, they're not believing in all of the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about this. The Old Testament predicted a prophet would come, but it also also predicted not that he would just be king and take over, but he also that he would suffer, that he must die as a substitute for sinners. And how come? So he's telling them, when you study your Old Testament, how come you don't believe all the verses? You all just want the nice ones. I just want the promises out of the Bible instead of the whole truth. That's what he's saying. So that his whole point here, and I think why Luke writes this, is that the resurrection needs to be assimilated, appropriated by faith. Can't just be human logic or reason. That's insufficient. And you can't be saved, you can't become a Christian unless you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of the gospel, the resurrection. So that's point number one. Christ's resurrection is appropriated by faith. So Jesus is going to give them what they need. What were they, what did they need? They were lacking or they were weak in faith. And now faith is going to come and be given to them. And what Jesus is going to use to give somebody who is weak in faith, and this is a great question, when people need faith, where do they get it? Well, there's only one source in the world to get faith. Did you know that? Religiously and spiritually speaking, only one place, according to the Bible. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. If somebody needs faith, and what, how, do you, how do you get saved? you need faith to be saved? Well, how do you get faith? It only comes from scriptural truth. That's the one source, and that's why point number two. Christ's resurrection is vindicated by Scripture. He's going to help grow and nurture their faith, bring it to a saving faith, but He's going to use the Scripture. Not logic, not human reason, not the five uh, theological, philosophical arguments for the existence of God that some man made up in the 1500s. It's Scripture is going to increase their faith and impart salvation to them. Let's go ahead and look at it. Two, these are probably the most important verses in this entire passage. Verse 26 and 27. So Jesus listens. He starts off with a rebuke. You're foolish. You need your thinking corrected, and I'm going to do that for you. Verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? It's a rhetorical question. What, what you need to understand is the Christ you were hoping in, the God crucified, that needed to happen. That happened according to the Scripture. Everything must be fulfilled regarding Jesus the Messiah, not just the things you want. It was necessary that He die. Otherwise, there's no forgiveness of sin. He had, Jesus had to die because that's where God the Father poured out His infinite wrath on Jesus as substitute. That is the good news. Hell is the bad news. Forgiveness of sin that's available is good news through Jesus. It was necessary. Verse 26. Then verse 27. It says, get this. Whether they kept walking or whether they stood standing, it says, and beginning with Moses, the five books of Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Did you know that Jesus believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Jesus believed that. And if Jesus believes it, that settles it for me. The reason I say that is because there's more and more evangelicals who deny that reality. 
They deny and reject the idea that Moses wrote Genesis. No, Moses wrote Genesis. He was commissioned by God to do it. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus was the master teacher. He was a rabbi. He knew the Scriptures. He had the Scriptures memorized. He wrote the Scriptures. He knows. He created Moses. He knows. And beginning with Moses, okay, guys, you need faith. You are lacking. Your thinking is deficient. Let's have a Bible study. And hey, let's keep walking while we do it. Here, let me, you got a scroll there? Let's whip that baby out. And that's what they did. And beginning with Moses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You mean Jesus is in the book of Genesis? Yes, He's in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't see the word Jesus there. In the beginning, God created God. Jesus is God. Jesus is in Genesis 1, 1. That's what John 1, 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is God. Jesus is in Genesis 1.1. That's why it says, beginning with Moses. Let me show you a little bit about who the Messiah really is. Can you imagine a Bible study going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? This could have turned into a long Bible study, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets. The rest of the Old Testament was called the prophets, including the history books and the 12 minor prophets and the five major prophets. And here's the key. He's going through this long study. A couple of keys. He's going to the Scriptures for answers. We need to do the same. We need to go to Scripture for the answers. Another uh, key. He is being Christ-centered as he searches the Scriptures. We need to do the same. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning, notice, himself in all the Scriptures. As we study the Bible, even the Old Testament, we need to be looking for Christ. Okay, where is Jesus in this? Because he is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. He said that himself. He came to fulfill the law. Another key in verse 27, it says that Jesus explained. The Greek word there is hermanuo, which comes from Hermes. Hermes was a Greek god. Phony, fake Greek God that the Greeks believed in, but Hermes was an Olympic God. He was also the God of communication and revealing truth, giving light and illumination. That was Hermes. That's where our English word hermeneutics comes from. That's what this word explained means and where it comes from. So Jesus opened up the Scriptures. Jesus illuminated the Scriptures. Jesus taught and explained the true meaning of the Scriptures. Hermeneuo is where we get the English word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of accurately interpreting the Bible. Which reminds me, every single one of us as Christians, we need somebody to explain the Scriptures to us. We can't read and study the Bible on our own. Can't do it. Can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Peter said in his epistle, the Scriptures are hard to understand. That's Peter the Apostle saying that. Man, and he specifically said, you know, sometimes I read Paul's epistles, my fellow apostle. He is, that guy is confusing. I do not understand him half the time. He's into these long run-on sentences. He's into this heavy theology. Man, I don't get what's up with that guy, the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what Peter said. No, so if Peter is having a hard time with Paul's epistles, how much more are we? That's why we need people to explain the Scriptures to us. And that's why God in His grace has given as a gift to the church for all the ages... Spiritual gifts called teachers. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. God has given teachers to the church to help them understand the Scriptures. I am a teacher, but you know what? I need a teacher. I need a lot of teachers. 
So as I study each week, man, wow, I didn't understand everything here. There are some things that I missed. I'm dependent upon probably 30 to 40 teachers every single week as I prepare a sermon. Most of them are dead. Dead guys who wrote really good commentaries on the Gospel of Luke or John. But they were gifted by God. They were pastors for years. They studied the Scriptures. They were in prayer. They were enlightened by previous teachers. And now I study from them in preparation because I need to be taught the Scriptures. It's difficult for me. The greatest teacher we have as a Christian is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. He is the teacher. He allows you. He opens your mind and allows you to see and apply scriptural, divine, supernatural truth. So Jesus explained to them clearly, supernaturally, the meaning of the Scripture, especially the Old Testament in particular, relating to Himself. And Jesus' whole point was He was validating the truth that the Messiah who came had to die by crucifixion to absorb God's wrath so that He could rise to a glorious resurrection confirming that He was the Messiah who had power over everything. Sin, death, hell, the devil, the world. He conquered it all. He is King. He is Savior. That is good news. He is alive. What a huge impact this had on them. Christ's resurrection is validated by the Scriptures. And then finally, number three is the conclusion of the story. Christ's resurrection is the basis of fellowship. I mean, what right do we have to come together here to get in a church building and say we worship God and sing songs and commiserate and talk and all this other stuff? What is the basis of even, what is the reason for even doing that? The only reason and rationale we do that is because we believe that Jesus is alive today. He rose from the dead. He is in heaven. He reigns on high. He is omniscient and even omnipresent. And He is everywhere with His people in their very midst. We believe as a church that Jesus is here in our midst today. That is the basis of why we gather. That's why you have a Bible study. If Jesus is not risen, your Christian faith is futile and in vain. It means nothing. And the implication, any religion that meets in the name of God that doesn't have a resurrected Christ is futile. It's meaningless. It is really satanic deception. So Christ's resurrection, a living Christ, the head of the church, He's the basis of our fellowship, of why we gather. Verse 28 through 35. So they're done with their Bible study. They must have been walking the whole time, long walk, and they approached the village of Emmaus, where they were going, probably where they lived. And Jesus acted as though He would go further. He's going to keep on walking. Verse 29. So they, but they urged and pleaded with Jesus, saying, Please stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And He went in to stay with them. This tells me... So they're pleading with Jesus. He's going to leave... And they still don't even know who He is. They don't know this is Jesus. He just did a five-hour Bible or whatever it was on Jesus, and they don't know this is Jesus yet. It's like, you're a really good Bible teacher. Hey, come to our house, have dinner, keep teaching us the Bible. So they're pleading with Him. Little do they know this is God in a body, and this is really comforting because this tells me that Jesus answers prayer. Did you know this was a prayer? Whenever you ask Jesus something and He's God, that's a prayer, isn't it? I mean, they're asking, Jesus, stay with us. Jesus answers prayer answers the prayer of His people very specifically. And Jesus responds positively to their request after they urged Him because it says in verse 30, it came about that when He had reclined at the table, He went in with them at the end of verse 29. He answered their prayer. Yes, I will go with you. I will spend further time with you for fellowship, for sweet, intimate fellowship. And He did. Verse 30 came about that when they had reclined at the table, literally probably laid on the floor as they did. That's the way they ate dinner. Little table on the floor, put the food on there. They lay on their side. And that's how you had a meal in the Middle East during Jesus' day. And that's what they were doing. 
So they're sitting down probably about supper time. They had bread and other food. And Jesus customarily, as he did before a meal, Jesus always prayed before a meal. Did you know that in Scripture? Without exception, 100% of the time. Thanking God the Father for that provision. Then that's what he did here. He took the bread, he blessed it, meaning he prayed. Father, thank you for your gracious provision of this food. Thank you for being a good creator. He broke the bread, meaning he was going to pass it around. This is fellowship. This was the fellowship meal I was talking about earlier. And he began giving them the food. And they start eating. They're with Jesus. This is great. Verse 31. It says all of a sudden, or suddenly, their eyes were opened. Once again, this is passive. Somebody opened their eyes. Well, we saw earlier that somebody closed their eyes so they couldn't recognize Jesus in verse 16. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him. And all of a sudden, boom, after the Bible study, they heard biblical truth. They were with the Messiah. They were encouraged in their hearts. They're sitting down, fellowship with Jesus. Instantaneously, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. And Jesus had an earlier experience in the day when Mary recognized Him. She attacked Him. Grabbed his feet, probably digging her fingernails in there, kissing, worshiping Jesus. And Jesus could be, I don't want that to happen again. So, as soon as they recognized him, it says at the end of verse 31, he vanished instantly from their sight. Boom! Wow. Why did he do that? I don't know. He's the sovereign Savior. But that's what he did. So they're eating, all of a sudden, oh, it's Jesus! Boom, he's gone. Verse 32, well, how did they react? They were not discouraged. They were not downcast. They did not have dark faces, as it said earlier at the end of verse 17. Rather, they said to one another or to each other, were not our hearts burning within us because of the truth that transformed them in the Bible study had even an emotional, physiological impact on their body. It was so profound, so liberating. Were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road? They were celebrating being encouraged supernaturally by the truth. That's what truth does. We feed on the truth of the Word of God. As it ministers to us and it encourages us, it lifts us up when we are downcast. That's what Scripture does. That's what Scripture do, or truth does. They were burning as Jesus was teaching on the road while He was explaining the Scriptures to us. It was fantastic. Verse 33, then they arose. And that very hour they returned to Jerusalem. See, there had been a transformation. They have been changed. They have been saved. They have gained hope and faith. And it came from Scripture and Jesus Himself. Now they're highly motivated. They want to celebrate God and Christ wherever they can. They want to go proclaim it from the rooftops. Jesus is alive. That's what fuels effective evangelism. We believe that the living Savior is real and that we know Him personally. And He can change lives eternally. That's what they thought. So they got up. They go back to Jerusalem for another seven miles. And it's late at night. Now it's going to be dark. But now they have no fear traveling on that road. And they made it to Jerusalem. It says when they got to Jerusalem, they found gathered together the eleven apostles that they were with earlier in the day. And those other disciples who were with them, probably some of the women... They came upon them, and verse 34 it says, saying, The Lord has really risen. He's appeared, and He's appeared to Simon. We, we believe it. Verse 35, And they began to relate their experience on the road and how He was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. What a, a great, fantastic truth. These men have been changed. They've been transformed. They've been saved, adopted in the family of God. And what did it was an invasion into their life through Jesus Himself personally, through the truth of the Scripture, the enlightening of their minds, the redeeming or removing of satanic blindness that prevents people from understanding the Gospel. And the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher on behalf of Jesus and God, 
to help people understand and comprehend and apply truth so they can become believers. And that's exactly what happened. And that became the basis of fellowship in Christ, the living, resurrected Christ. And right now we have the wonderful privilege of celebrating the resurrection Christ or the resurrected Christ through communion in our own body. So let's go ahead and prepare for that. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. And uh, if you close your eyes, Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the people that you brought our way. Thank you for our visitors, that your hand of blessing and protection would be upon them. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the treasure of your word. Most of all, Jesus, we thank you that you are the risen, living Savior, that you're here in our midst, and it is our great privilege to learn more of you and to worship you, to give you all the glory, and that's our desire. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.